Hello, and welcome to Intelligence and Society. This is a series of lessons that focus on how cases of espionage and subversion are reflected in American popular culture. Your host is Dr. Mark Selinsky, author and 40-year veteran of the United States intelligence community. Intelligence and Society is a product of Kensington Security Consulting, a firm that brings education to national security. The material in these lessons does not express the official position of any agency in the United States government. And now, today's lesson. Hi, Mark here, and welcome to Intelligence and Society. This lesson is blacklisting then and now. We will discuss some of the books and movies that focus on the blacklist period in Hollywood. We will ask the question whether it's ethical to blacklist a person for his or her political opinions or affiliation. In the 1940s and 50s, Hollywood studios refused to employ people connected to the Communist Party of the United States. Today, Wall Street firms have announced that they will not hire people who support the terrorist group Hamas. Many universities demand that applicants for employment positions pledge solidarity to often abstract principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Is it fair to deny employment to somebody because of their political beliefs? But first, what is a blacklist? Generally, it's a list of people targeted to be boycotted, generally for political reasons. I'm sure that it existed in some form since antiquity. Some lists are formal and some are informal. If people are known to be troublemakers or agitators, their names could be circulated to employers who become very wary of hiring them. There are certainly blacklists in political organizations. But the list about which we will talk today is the Hollywood blacklist. The Hollywood blacklist really is a series of lists that offer the names of people suspected of being communists or having supported communism. Some 250 Hollywood personalities, fairly or unfairly, had their name on one or more of several lists, and some did lose employment opportunities. Retired FBI counterintelligence analysts and agents produced one publication which was widely used by studio heads. In an earlier lesson, we discussed the development of the Communist Party of the United States, or CPUSA. We now turn to the coordinated congressional efforts to ferret out communism in Hollywood. The House Committee on Un-American Activities, or HUAC, held hearings in which friendly witnesses offered up names of suspected communists, while unfriendly witnesses sparred with committee members. Ten witnesses refused to cooperate, and pundits dubbed them the Hollywood Ten which led to imprisonment for some on charge of contempt of Congress. Hollywood studios blacklisted them and others because they feared that the public would boycott movies connected to communist writers, directors, producers, or actors. Some historians view this period as a dark and intolerant epic in which 
Americans practicing their constitutional rights were unfairly marginalized, hounded, and imprisoned. In this view, screenwriters were liberals in a hurry, just helping America's Soviet allies. Other credible historians claim that the HUAC investigations and blacklists were absolutely vindicated. Ronald Radish, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, said they decided right from the beginning not to tell the truth. They weren't concerned with freedom of speech, but of protecting the Communist Party. It was completely fraudulent. So, did the Soviet Union have agents in Hollywood over whom they had operational control? Were those agents influential? And did the HUAC hearings further American security? Communism in Hollywood? Parlor Bolsheviki. From its early days, the Soviet Union tried to export its revolution through the Communist International, or Comintern. And it had some initial success in Central Europe. Soviet agents were active in Hollywood in the 1930s and 1940s. Lenin and Stalin both looked to cinema as a tool for spreading Soviet ideology and to seed public and foreign opinion. In 1935, V.J. Jerome, the cultural commissar of the CPUSA, established a branch of the party in Hollywood. The CPUSA was a controlled subsidiary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, as we learned in an earlier lesson. To disguise their influence, communists built front organizations with socialist and New Deal liberals. These included the Motion Picture Committee to Aid Spanish Democracy, the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League, and the League of American Writers. These complicated efforts of the FBI to identify which group was controlled by the CPUSA. It was hard to determine which group was very left-leaning, but not directly or indirectly controlled by Moscow. Was the group progressive and independent, or was it controlled by the Soviet Union? We saw earlier that prominent labor organization leaders were very anti-communist. In Hollywood, the picture is cloudy. FBI files of October 1943 makes it clear that Moscow had directed the CPUSA to infiltrate Hollywood labor unions and the motion pictures industry. This is an important fact. The CPUSA kept very tight reins on the activities of its members, particularly the screenwriters. The ringmaster was John Howard Lawson, who ran a very tight stoneless ship. When writers did not tow the party line, Lawson would lead efforts to expel them. In fact, several of those expelled were members of the Hollywood Ten. By 1947, liberals had grown disillusioned with their communist allies. Ex-communists, such as screenwriters Bud Schulberg and Philip Dunn, understood the danger to artistic freedom that the communists posed. The blacklist begins. First, what was the American anti-communist blacklist, and how did it operate? The term blacklist became popularized by studio heads to distance their creative products from communists 
and communism. People spoke of the blacklist, making it a proper singular noun, but there were several privately controlled firms that created lists of persons suspected of collaborating with the Soviet Union. The studio chiefs saw the blacklist, or more accurately, the blacklists, as tools to improve their public image. They would prove to the public that they would not hire communists. The blacklist period began in November 1947, following a meeting of the heads of major studios at New York's Waldorf Astoria Hotel. The word blacklist is sometimes used as a noun as well as a verb. To blacklist means to refuse to do business with a person, firm, or country, usually for a political reason. Studios use no single vetted list. Determining who was a communist was often messy, embarrassing, and fraught with error. During the Spanish Civil War, many Americans with scarlet leanings saw the Soviets as their allies. This certainly became the case during World War II. Hollywood made three films highly sympathetic of the Soviet Union, which we will discuss later. Membership in the Communist parties was not illegal in the United States. After the war, the FBI and congressional investigators tried to determine who were the communist leaders with direct or indirect access to the Soviets. In 1947, retired FBI counterintelligence analysts created Counterattack, the newsletter of facts on communism. The magazine used its connection to the FBI and the HUAC to put together dossiers on people working in the entertainment industry presumed to have communist connections. The list included actors such as E.G. Robinson, Orson Welles, Lee J. Cobb, Julie Holiday, Burgess Meredith, and Zero Mostel, writers such as Lillian Hellman, Arthur Miller, Dashiell Hallmett, Langston Hughes, musicians such as Leonard Bernstein, Aaron Copeland, and Artie Shaw, performers such as Pete Seeger, Lena Horne, Burl Ives. Beneath each target's name and profession was a list of their suspicious activities, which mostly involved attending a meeting or contributing to some left-leaning group. Over 350 people found their names on some blacklist at some point. Also, in 1947, the HUAC began investigating Soviet influence in Hollywood. Some studio heads, producers, directors, and actors were glad to testify. Others were not. In September 1947, friendly witnesses such as Ronald Reagan and Robert Taylor testify to HUAC that communists were a significant force in Hollywood. J. Parnell Thomas chaired the HUAC Hollywood investigations. Gary Cooper said that he turned down several scripts because communist-influenced un-American messages were in the scripts. Here you see Cooper testifying before HUAC. Well, I have turned down quite a few scripts because I thought they were tinged with communistic ideas. They uh, haven't attempted to use me, I don't think, because apparently um, they know that I'm not very sympathetic to 
communism. In a future lesson, we'll focus on the friendlies to understand their concerns and why they cooperated with HUAC. The committee also called 19 witnesses who did not want to testify. They whittled the list down to 10 unfriendly witnesses, all of whom were either members of the Communist Party or fellow travelers. Most pled the Fifth Amendment, protesting the committee was violating their freedom of speech by even asking their political affiliations. At least four of the ten were critical and commercial successes. Writers Dalton Tombo and Ring Lardner, director Ed Dimitrick, and producer Adrian Scott had been very prolific. Others were less known, and their efforts did not make a mark on the industry. On the stand at the hearing, several took the opportunity to grandstand in defiance of Congress. John Howard Lawson, the leader of the Communist Circle, gave Chairman Thomas a tutorial in, in civics, and Dalton Trumbo warned of impending concentration camps in America. It became quite as spectacular as Thomas banged his gavel to end the filibustering of the witnesses. Here is Lawson, the central figure among the Ring of Communists, testifying before Congress. He was very hostile indeed. Judge for yourself. Have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? It's unfortunate and tragic that I have to teach this committee the that's basic principles of Americanism. Studios promised their audiences and television sponsors that they would not hire communists. In consequence, some actors and writers lost their jobs. Meanwhile, blacklist fixers burnished the tarnished images, giving outcasts re-entry into Hollywood. None of the blacklisted writers or actors starved, though life could be very difficult living in Mexico or in Europe if you didn't have much money. I am not sure if most audiences missed their products. Most of the 10 were not exceptionally talented. And audiences began to tire of the social realism and the preachy undercurrents in their scripts. Billy Wilder quipped, that among the hostile witnesses, only two or three had any talent, while the rest were just unfriendly. Also, many Americans did not like communism. A succession of high-profile espionage trials revealed that the Soviets had high-level espionage at networks in the United States. By the early 1960s, social reformers turned to civil rights as a national cause and away from communism. So what happened to the blacklist? It, it withered away by the early 1960s. By then, communism lost its foothold in Hollywood. This is not to say that the Moscow-supporting hard left was not a powerful voice. Marxism was insinuating itself into the very fabric of the American university, where it would flourish and metastasize, and we will have several lessons on this. This was the start of the left's march through the institutions. But by the middle of the 1960s, few actors or writers in Hollywood were under the direct operational control of Moscow. A pivotal moment in the heated saga of the blacklist came with Kirk Douglas, 
demanding that Dalton Trumbo be given credit for writing Spartacus. In 1971, Ring Lardner won an Oscar script for M.A.S.H. Now I want to turn to the movies that offered sympathetic views of those who were blacklisted. These movies are The Majestic, The Way We Were, and The Front. Part 2. We now move to movies and books about the blacklist that you may find informative, interesting, and entertaining. The Way We Were is a 1973 American romantic drama directed by Sidney Pollack and starring Barbara Streisand and Robert Redford. Arthur Lawrence wrote the novel and the screenplay based on his college days at Cornell University in the 1930s as well as his experiences with Huac. In the movie, the Streisand character is a young Communist League campus activist whom the conservative and very Gentile Robert Redford finds intriguing and later alluring. Here she is at college. Gary, you're darn right it is. There's only one thing to be scared of, and it's not me. You see the camera pan to Redford, who is showing some interest. Their paths cross again during World War II, and they fall in love and into bed very quickly. Throughout the movie, the Streisand character openly advocates Moscow's policies. She never deviates from the party line, from the Spanish Civil War to the Soviet-American Friendship Society. The Redford character dodges politics and becomes a successful screenwriter. But the Huac targets his friends and co-workers and draws him into the anti-communist vortex of the 1950s. The FBI insinuates itself into the drama when a left-leaning producer discovers a microphone secreted in a Picasso painting. The FBI and the specter of the blacklist are everywhere and nowhere in the film. In Malibu, with fame and a sports car and a beautiful house, Redford is pressured to change his film to escape the long reach of Huac and the blacklist. His wife and friends see him as having sold out, but to whom is unclear. The Streisand character cries, I hate what you did to your book. I hate the movie. I hate palm trees. Wish it were rain. She misses the hard left smart set of New York. She also misses the early love she shared with Redford, who cheats on her in the film. The marriage falls apart, but not Streisand's passion for international justice and her hatred for what she terms as American fascism. The movie received some pretty warm reviews. They were solid. Some were mixed. Some reviewers claimed that it lacked gravitas or a clear purpose beyond serving as a showcase for the velvet-throated chanteuse. Women overwhelmingly like it. It was a Chick flick, as we would say in the 1970s. The public looked past the politics and embraced the movie as a love story with a bittersweet ending. As for Blacklist, those promoting the Blacklist were cast as, in the words of the Streisand character, 
fascists. The front. In the front, Woody Allen is cast as a very unfamiliar and certainly unfunny role as a small-time bookie who hopes to cash in on an underground scriptwriting market at the height of the blacklist. The Woody film is not a comedy. The Front was written by Walter Bernstein, who was blacklisted during the 1950s, as were co-stars Zero Mostel and Hershen Bernardi. As with the movies profiled in this lesson, it slams the blacklist and those who supported it. An old friend, a writer, gives the Woody Allen character the opportunity of a lifetime. The real writer is blacklisted and proposes a partnership. Now, Allen would front the scripts by putting his name on them and hawking them to studios. Exnova? Hollywood discovers a new writing sensation who is, of course, the Allen character. Soon he is making a comfortable living. Zero Mostel, on the other hand, plays yesterday's comic who was cocky and popular until he was blacklisted. Now he struggles to find gigs in the Catskills, which is all too much for him. He jumps out of a window, ending his torments. In the movie's last scene, Alan tells Huak to unnaturally reproduce themselves. <laughs> Here's the final scene. Fellas. I don't recognize the right of this committee to ask me these kind of questions. And furthermore, you can all go fuck yourselves. Well, this act of defiance earns him the love of his girlfriend, who up to then was uncertain of Woody's integrity. In the closing credits, the names of the approximately one dozen actors appear with the dates of their blacklisting period. The moral is clear, those blacklisted were victims. Roger Eber liked the idea and the execution of the movie. It was Woody Allen's first serious role, and he employed actors who really were blacklisted many years earlier. Ebert would have preferred a stronger indictment of the blacklist. He said, quote, we expected an indictment of a shameful chapter in American history, unquote. Vincent Canby of the New York Times saw Allen as perfectly cast. Some of the weaker reviews claimed it was boring and preachy. The Majestic. In an all-star cast, including Hal Holbrook, Martin Landau, Ronald Rifkin, and James Whitmore, Jim Carrey plays the 1950s young scriptwriter accused of communist sympathies. His associates have been accused of communism, and he learns that he is on a blacklist, though he only attended one communist meeting to impress an attractive girl. He suffers from amnesia after being concussed in a road accident. He is taken by the residents to the small seaside town are you ready for this? Of Lawson. And he is mistaken for a local of Lawson who went missing during World War II. Carrie adjusts to a new life based on this false biography. He has a purpose to renovate the majestic movie theater, which had fallen into disuse. 
The FBI is on Carey's trail and sends agents to search for him. At the end, Carey is jolted out of amnesia. The film was a financial and critical failure. It quickly disappeared from movie theaters. Other films dealing with the subject are Guilty by Suspicion with Robert De Niro, which fares no better among critics or the public than did The Majestic. It was reviewed as being tedious and tendentious. If you are interested in a critical account of The Blacklist, you may want to watch a documentary narrated by Alec Baldwin. It's called Blacklist, Hollywood on Trial. In it, several of the Hollywood Ten were interviewed. The introduction is shown here. Shortly after World War II, hundreds of Hollywood filmmakers were dragged before United States congressional committees and questioned about their political beliefs. Actors and actresses, writers and directors who refused to cooperate with the Washington congressmen lost their jobs in Hollywood. None of the studios would hire them. Over 250 top professionals were blacklisted. Hello, I'm Alec Baldwin, and I'm going to tell you about one of America's most fascinating and one of its most hidden scandals. Now let's turn to books about the blacklist. There are many books about the blacklist. Important earlier works in the subject include Victor Navasky's Naming Names, Hiding in Plain Sight, The Hollywood Blacklists in Film and Television, 1950 to 2002, by Paul Boulet and Dave Wagner, and Red Star Over Hollywood, The Film Colony's Long Romance with the Left, by Ronald and Alice Radish. Victor Davasky, Pulitzer Prize winner and longtime editor and publisher of The Nation, was a foremost scholar of the blacklist period. Navasky wrote naming names after interviewing more than 150 people who had been called to testify at the HUAC hearings. Critics praised the book for its objectivity and empathy. However, more conservative reviewers assessed the book as being unfairly critical of informers. The book received the National Book Award in 1982, so it is important. Ellen Schrecker is an American historian and author who has written extensively about McCarthyism and American higher education. Many Are the Crimes, McCarthyism in America provides a survey of anti-communist organizations and individuals that defined anti-communism. Other scholars do not cast these blacklisted individuals as victims. Red Star Over Hollywood by Ronald Radish takes a very different approach from that of Navasky or Schrecker. Radish, a very prolific author of historical accounts of American communism, types many Hollywood actors and screenwriters as either dupes or strong advocates of the Soviet Union who try to inject propaganda in American entertainment. They cast themselves as victims of an inquisition rather than being apologists for Stalin. Radish attacks what he characterizes as, quote, the fable of innocence destroyed by malice. They wrapped themselves in the American flag when it suited them and in the Soviet flag when they were ordered to do so. Part 3, An Insider's View. The way we were, 
the front and the majestic. In my view, the way we were is an ethically challenged movie that ignores Stalin's mass killings and celebrates Streisand as a spunky, working-class, New York, Jewish communist, and Redford as a morally lapsed but drop-dead gorgeous aspiring writer. Attending college with Redford, Streisand looks like Rosa Luxemburg's long-lost twin sister with her frazzled hair and waving her fists on a podium. With her surly obsessions of capitalism and warmongering, Streisand's persona of the campus radical Yenta almost slips into comedy. And the film would have worked for me had she remained in parody throughout the film. But the film never fully descends into satire or parody. Her rage against Americanism is cast as a warm eccentricity. Here's an example. The Soviet Union. Katie, be my comrade. Oh, Katie. What are you scared of? The Russians don't want anybody in Spain but the Spanish. Is that scary? They're communists, yes, but they want total disarmament now. Is that scary? Hitler and Mussolini are using the Spanish earth as testing ground for what they want. Another world war. Is that scary? You're darn right it is. There's only one thing to be scared of. And it's not me. It's not the Young Communist League. And it's not the Red Bogeyman. You'd be scared of anybody, any place, who will not stand up for world peace now. So for me, it's hard to understand why Robert Redford would be emotionally or physically attracted to her. In the film, he is draped with nubile and docile coeds of whom he could have taken his pick, including Susan Blakely. Perhaps it was Bab's spitfire energy. Here is Streisand at work. The Pentagon feels that after the war... It'll be as crummy be... as it was before the war, you racist think. Oh, what's the matter with her this week? This week? What do you mean, what's the matter with her I this would look, week? Would look, will you both shut up? I have 21 minutes of dead air. Yeah, well, it's his fault. Hello. Okay, okay. I'll sign. Hubble? Her mood changes pretty quickly when she discovers that the Redford character is on the phone. For me, her nonstop kvetching becomes exasperating. Though here is where the film is historically accurate. American communists were very angry people. People who knew them, the Hollywood Ten in particularly, Loss and Maltz and the gang, described their seething rage and explosive temperaments. Many were just mean people who, in the words of the Redford character, said, they always talked politics. Red Babs had a nasty streak in the movie. She calls army officers fascist finks, tells people to shut up throughout the film, and is often obnoxious, particularly among Redford's circle of friends. Her friends were fellow travelers who strategized at party meetings. So 
Her portrayal of a rage-filled communist seems pretty accurate, and we are going to see much of this in the movies examined in future lessons in the series. For me, the movie had a haunting familiarity with today's America, particularly its universities. In one scene, Redsford's friends made a joke. They joked about, well, one joked about Eleanor Roosevelt's buck teeth to the chagrin of Streisand, who explodes, demanding that everybody at the party shut up. She scolds them for insensitive and improper humor. Didn't they know that it's immoral to joke about Eleanor Roosevelt? And Bab succeeds in intimidating the party guests into silence to the embarrassment of the Redford character. Still, there is something wistfully romantic about the movie that goes well beyond the music. Her voice is exquisite by any standard, and it's shown in the Academy Award-winning rendition of the signature song, The Way We Were. And it's shown in the signature song, you've heard it, I'm sure, Memories. Her voice is exquisite by any standard, and it's shown in her rendition of the Academy Award signature song, Memories. As she might say, her voice was... Gorgeous, just gorgeous. Now, in contrast to this quick-paced romance, the front was a tedious, unfunny, though well-acted Woody film, which was too preachy. As with The Way We Were and The Majestic, the front pays no attention to the realities of Soviet communism. Alan's love interest takes a moral stand against Huak and the Blacklist. She quits her job explaining... I quit because there is more to life than just sex. There are human rights. Human rights? In 1952, there were no human rights in communist Russia and no political prisons in the United States. There was no gulag. Zero Mostel's performance as the libeled comic is strong. The blacklist unfairly tainted some lesser-known actors who did not have the resources or connections to get their names off lists, and that's a fact. But I would not have selected Mostel to play an undeserving casualty of Huac. For years, he whitewashed Soviet influence in the United States. At a speech at Harvard, he asked... What could actors be guilty of, of passing secrets to Russian actors? Yeah, very cute. American actors likely had no secrets to pass to Russian actors or anybody else, and Mustel knew that, but he also knew that he and his colleagues served the interests of the Soviet Union by painting a very positive image of life there. And these were information operations or active measures. Here's a scene from the play Zero Hour, written by Jim Broku, in which he plays Mostel. In the scene, Mostel slams loose lips Jerome Robbins, who gave up names. Jerome Robbins. Jerry Robbins, he gave them names. They called him in front of the committee in 1953. He had to go home twice to change his underwear before he got to the hearings. He was so terrified. But once he got there, he kissed the feet of the committee. 
He said he had been at a Communist Party meeting in 1947 with Jerome Chutterall and Lionel Berman and Madeline Lee, Madeline, who was married to Jack Gilfie. Dear, sweet Madeline Lee, the Red Menace, a little radio actress who made baby noises for a living. He gave them the names of my friends. And the thing about Robbins was he was never committed to communism or social action. He had never read Marx or Lenin. He couldn't understand dialectical materialism, much less have a conversation about it. He was a self-centered son of a bitch. Brilliant, but self-centered. He got out of the army in 1943 by telling the world he was a homosexual. And 10 years later, he gave the committee names so that the world wouldn't find out he was a homosexual. I guess morality is a matter of timing. He only went to communist meetings to make connections, to further his career. Hell, he would have joined the Girl Scouts if they let him choreograph a number. <laughs> Here you see the volcanic anger erupting against the choreographer Jerome or Jerry Robbins for cooperating. Mostel's argument is that Robbins had mercenary, not ideological incentives for cooperating within communist circles. But listen as he continues his soliloquy. That time in America cannot be forgotten because it was the the most insidious and subtlest of all exterminations. They said they were trying to eradicate communist, communist equal liberal, and liberal equaled Jew. And if you were a Jewish writer or a director, you had influence. Your thoughts got out to the general public. They weren't going after the liberal tailors. They weren't going after the kosher butchers because their thoughts never reached past their front counters. They wanted the artists. That committee of lily white Protestants marched us in front of their firing squad of shame. Here he vituperates against what he alleges to be the anti-Semitism of the investigations. Now, this charge will re-emerge in successive lessons, particularly in the Rosenberg case. In my view, there is scant evidence to support this charge. Though only five in a hundred Jews were radicals, five in ten Hollywood radicals were Jews. We'll speculate as to why that's the case in future lessons, but it was the case. I recommend a very short documentary that is hostile to the blacklist. It is Victims of the Blacklist, produced by The Hollywood Reporter. In the film, several blacklisted actors related their struggles, losses, and anger. Several actors were openly sympathetic to communism and years later were unapologetic with their associations with Moscow. Others were simply drained emotionally. Final thoughts. Yves Montan, the French actor who towed the party line for years, later went on television and said, we were bastards. He was referring to artists who served Stalin's Russia. Montan was a communist who later regretted his support for the Soviet Union. In my view, the efforts of communist writers and producers in the United States were at best misplaced. These men and women 
should have broken with Moscow and condemned the torture and murder of Soviet artists, Soviet actors, Soviet directors, Soviet poets. The great theatrical director Vesvold Meyerhold spoke of the torture he endured by the NKVD. These were the early KGB. And here I quote, The investigators began to use force on me, a sick, 65-year-old man. I was made to lie face down and then beaten on the soles of my feet and my spine with a rubber strap. Oh, how I howled and wept from pain, unquote. The poet Yusak Babel and scholar Pavel Florensky were among thousands of artists, poets, writers, who, after lengthy interrogations and prison terms, were shot. Six of the Hollywood Ten were raised as Jews. Did they protest the killing of Yiddish-language playwright Peretz Markish? And I could go on and on. My point here is that they were silent, as Stalin's death machine killed millions, many artists among them. Where were the voices of American communists? People would have listened to them. So now we ask perhaps a very personal question. Was, in your opinion, the blacklist vindicated? Each of us can determine whether HUAC investigations were justified. Here are some arguments against it, as well as my responses. Argument one, art and artists should be judged artistically and not by the standards of politics. This line argues that an individual's political beliefs or affiliations are absolutely irrelevant to the aesthetic standards. All right. Boycotting and blacklisting people for their politics violates individual liberties and is contrary to American democracy. Okay, but the difficulty here is that the CPUSA brought politics into Hollywood at the behest of a foreign and hostile country that had no tolerance at all for, for, for artistic freedom. The Huwak did not investigate the artistic quality of the movies. It tried to determine if Moscow had agents injecting propaganda into American culture. The Soviets called these active measures, and we'll talk in depth about active measures in later lessons. Argument two. The Soviets were our allies during the war, they were our allies and lost over 20 million civilians and soldiers fighting for their motherland. Ivan's courage should be and is saluted. But the Soviets were enemies of democracies before and after the war. The Soviets were allies with Hitler for a brief period and invaded and divvied up Poland. After the war, the Soviet Union prevented free, fair, and contested elections in any of the countries it occupied. Finally, the fact that the Soviets were briefly our allies is irrelevant to the charge of Soviet-controlled CPUSA activity in Hollywood. Argument 3. After a war, there is often an amnesty. Well, why not for American communists? People point to the American post-Civil War period as a moment of forgiveness and national reconciliation. The Republican administration pardoned most 
former Confederates. There was an amnesty for those who did not serve in Vietnam over a hundred years later. But this is not analogous to the Cold War. After the Confederacy surrendered, Confederates were pardoned if they cooperated with the government. But many blacklisted actors and writers did not cooperate with HUAC. And those who did were generally not blacklisted or taken off the blacklist. In future lessons, we will see that communists who renounced their ties to the Soviet Union were welcomed back into society. Some even became celebrities. Argument four. The CPUSA was a legal political party and should not be judged by any harder than other American political parties, which are also flawed. Yes, is true, but it misses a critical point. The Hollywood communists, if they were party members, held allegiance to the Soviet Union. American liberals, on the other hand, were patriotic internal reformers. They worked within democratic norms to eliminate racial barriers and provide for the poor. They did not operate clandestinely for a foreign, hostile power, as did American communists. Argument 5. Those who gave up the names were stoolies because they betrayed their friends. Honorable people do not betray their friends. This is a common claim of the blacklisting period. Initially, many celebrities were reluctant to give up names to the HUAC. They were convinced that their friends were innocent. However, some of them later felt that they were duped. Humphrey Bogart was openly angry that he was deceived about the communist affiliation of hostile witnesses. He shouted to Danny Kay, you sold me out, meaning that Kay manipulated Bogart's naivete about communism and betrayed his trust. Argument six, the process was sloppy and more harmful than helpful. Many people were unfairly tarnished. Nancy Davis, later to become Nancy Reagan, was on a list and her future husband got her off that list. The most celebrated defamation case was that of folksy John Henry Falk, a journalist at CBS with energy and talent. His famed civil rights lawyer, Louis Neiser, won his libel case against a blacklisting firm. I recommend the made-for-television movie Fear on Trial, which was aired in 1975, if you can find it. Did the blacklist work? Please watch this exchange between Ronald Radish and an audience member on the efficacy of the blacklist. Radish was asked if the blacklist backfired. This is his response. True, the communists benefited from the blacklist because it allowed them to paint themselves as great martyrs for free speech, when as we saw, they didn't believe in free speech, they only believed in it for themselves. Uh, they, some of them wanted to go out, not answer the committees. They wanted to hold a press conference and come out front and say, we are communists and we're proud of it, but we just don't want to talk about what we believe before Congress. But to, we're telling the public what we really believe. Well, that was vetoed. They were told by the Communist Party leaders, we don't want you to do that. We want you to pretend to be what you aren't, to fool people, so they'll work with you thinking you're just regular liberals. And they wouldn't allow them to do that. So uh, the blacklist uh, enabled them, I mean, they're living it 
for years, every few years, there's a major article, movie, radio play honoring the victims of the blacklist. It never stops. The last thing was the PBS film two years ago, written by the son of Dalton Trumbo, called Red, White, and Blacklisted. Some of you may have seen on PBS. Uh, you watch that film, you wouldn't know that Trumbo was a hardline communist. It only paints him as a martyr for free speech, never mentions what he believed or what he said privately. Uh, the whole picture has been distorted over and over so that people who learn about the past learn about it in one distorted way. They never get the real story about what happened. They never even know that later in life, even Dalton Trumbo began to turn against his original beliefs. In his take of events, being on the blacklist brought a prestige of sorts. The blacklisted could claim that they were victimized and have proof by showing their name on counterattack. Some of those listed did lose employment, but many were not particularly talented and likely were not very competitive. There are implications for today, however. The word blacklist is not commonly used today, but boycotts and censorship are widespread. Through the 1950s, studios had a near monopoly on movie production and distribution, which give their blacklist credibility and punch. Today, several companies have an overwhelming control of social media. There is concern that views, generally associated with conservative positions, are censored. Others point to a broad-based boycott of Bud Light Beer, because of a commercial it produced, a gender-bending commercial. So what's my bottom line? The HUAC was well within its scope of responsibility to investigate communism in Hollywood. The CPUSA was under the operational control of the Soviet Union. This is a fact. Over the years, Congress investigated organized crime, the Ku Klux Klan, September 11, 2001 attack, the Iran-Contra scandal, UFOs, and many criminal enterprises, HUAC would have been negligent if it had not investigated Soviet influence. Please remember that there were stunning revelations of Soviet influence in the United States. If Chairman Thomas appeared overly aggressive, driving his gavel into the desk, it was because the Hollywood 10 would not ask simple questions. Instead, they offered tutorials. The Hollywood 10 were dishonest from the beginning. As for the blacklist, all right, the blacklist was flawed. People whose names were tossed, sometimes cavalierly on the list, became pariahs and were made unemployable. The list hurt many people who had only a tenuous connection to communism. Some of the accusations were unfounded and ugly. We will see this in, un in upcoming lessons. A clear example of people being unfairly hurt by a list is the case, this case, Red Channels, was the firing of actress Jean Muir from her role in a television series on the demand of the show's sponsor. Muir offered a public statement crying, I am not a communist. I've never been one. I believe that communists represent a vicious and destructive force, and I'm opposed to them. Nonetheless, she could not get an acting role for eight years. You may agree that this Kafkaesque maze of censors with the power to destroy reputations and careers 
is hauntingly familiar to social media today. As Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter revealed, individuals can be deplatformed by nameless bureaucrats without meaningful means of appeal and for reasons they do not understand. I think these studios made a mistake by using the published lists of names. The intent of using lists made sense. It was intelligent. Ex-FBI agents and specialists in subversion assembled facts to justify the inclusions of persons on the lists. But I think the studio heads should have used a quieter approach, a more gentle approach. No actor has the right to employment. If somebody in 1950 belonged to an enemy organization, studios could decide not to hire them. But by 1950, many of those who had been communists in the 30s and 40s had moved on. Perhaps it was time for the studio heads to have moved on, too. It would have saved a lot of headaches. Today, blacklist of suspected communists are gone. The, the Soviet Union is gone as well. Both are relics of history. But censorship and boycotting in America remain. And I, for one, am worried but what do you think? What are your opinions? I'm going to now leave you with some questions to think about. Until the next lesson, goodbye. And once again, the information contained in this lesson does not represent the official position of any U.S. government agency. Question one. Do you think the HUAC investigations were vindicated? Was the blacklist justified? A chairman of a major software firm contributed money to Proposition 8 campaign in California, an effort to define marriage as a union between a man and a woman. Activists created an online campaign to have him fired. The chairman expressed sorrow for causing pain and promised to work with gay activists. But under pressure, he resigned. Was the chairman blacklisted? Should he have been forced to resign? Question two. After Elon Musk bought Twitter, he revealed a cooperative relationship between Twitter and the FBI. Can it be likened to the FBI counterintelligence efforts with studio chiefs in the 40s and 50s? Does it concern you? Thank you, and goodbye until the next lesson from Kensington Security Consulting. Thank you for listening to this lesson in Intelligence and Society. We invite educators to use these lessons in their courses if they would like. This was brought to you by Kensington Security Consulting, where we bring education to national security.